Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Before we start the show, I have a small favor to ask. If you love Stay Tuned, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And it's not terrible for my ego. Here are just some of the nice things people have been saying about Stay Tuned. Nancy Morales writes, I look forward to listening every week. While Cunning Spy, good name, writes, so informative but not preachy. If you feel the same way about this show... Add your voice with a, I don't know, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks very much. Now on with the show. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If I'm covering a campaign, I'm not going to vote. I think it is a privilege to be a reporter covering a presidential campaign and to convey information to the American electorate. And that, to me, is fulfilling my duty as an American citizen, much more so than casting one ballot. That's Katie Turr. She's a correspondent for NBC News and hosts MSNBC Live every day. She's got a new book out called Unbelievable. It's about covering the Trump campaign in 2016. I wanted to have Katie on because not only is she, you know, incredibly smart, great journalist, great writer, we've had journalists on the show before, but Katie comes from the world of TV journalism, which I think is a little bit different. And we had a great conversation about her insights about what it means to be on television, how to interview someone effectively, and the perils of access journalism. Before we get to your questions, obviously the biggest news relating to the Mueller investigation this week has to do with reports that Special Counsel Mueller and his team are looking to interview the president himself in the coming weeks. So I have a few reactions to that. One is, uh, I don't know how much to believe the timetable. The likelihood is that that information comes from the White House or lawyers for Donald Trump, who have made it a point for a long time now uh, to suggest that the investigation is coming to a close. They said last year that it would be over by the end of the calendar year. That wasn't true. So they have some interest in suggesting that the timetable is a short one. I have no doubt, though, that the Mueller team wants to interview the president. Now, what that tells you in the ordinary course, although this is not an ordinary investigation, it's not an ordinary circumstance, it's not an ordinary prosecutor, ordinarily, when you're at the point when you're going to be interviewing the most high-profile subject or target in your investigation, that usually means that you're near the end of it. And though 
it's possible that there are other avenues that they might be looking at with respect to the president. The fact that they are, if it's true, setting up an interview, knowing that they may only get one bite at the apple, because you're probably not going to have two opportunities, it means they're nearing the end of at least some phase of their investigation. So, as President Trump himself says, we'll see what happens. Hello, Preet. My name is Ray Jones. I'm calling from Jacksonville, Florida. I see today that our um, Attorney General has met with Special Prosecutor Mueller and his team, and I was wondering if Attorney General Sessions is free to discuss his interview with our president, or would that kind of be sort of obstruction of justice? Thank you, and I really enjoy the show. Thanks, Ray. That's a great question. Um, I don't think there's a, you know, an absolute legal prohibition on Jeff Sessions having a conversation with the president, but I don't think it's wise, and there has been some reporting, if it's believed, that says that the president was has been annoyed that Jeff Sessions has not told him about the details of his interview with Special Counsel Mueller, and witnesses who are smart and know what they're doing usually keep to themselves about those interviews. But the fact of the Sessions interview, I think, is interesting for a number of reasons, and I'll mention two. One reason is it shows, I think, some advancement in the investigation overall, because Sessions is an important, high-ranking, high-profile witness. And the fact that they've already completed their interview with him, I think, means that with respect to the kinds of things that Sessions has information about, whether it's related to collusion or it's related to obstruction involving the firing of Jim Comey, that the investigation is pretty far along because usually you want to do those kinds of interviews towards the end. And the second thing I'll say is it goes to show again the absurdity of Donald Trump's position that Jeff Sessions should never have recused himself. I mean, what you would have had here is a person, if he was unrecused, overseeing a particular investigation and simultaneously being, now not hypothetically anymore, but in fact, a witness in the very same investigation. And even if you're not a lawyer, common sense tells you that you cannot both supervise an investigation and also be a witness in that investigation. So I think those things are significant, and we'll see where it goes from here. Next question comes from Twitter, from Josh Turner, who asks, uh, Preet Bharara, does lying to Mr. Mueller carry the same penalty as lying to the FBI, given his designation as special counsel? The answer is yes. Hi, Preet. My name is Amy and I'm calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I would like to know more about the grand jury process. Can you tell us why we have them and how they work? Seems a little bit of a mystery to me. Thanks so much. Love your show. Well, thanks, Amy, for your question. It's pretty broad. Uh, that's a seminar. Uh, I guess let me just answer it quickly this way. You know, the, the grand jury system is embedded in the tradition of law in this country. It works differently in the federal system than it does in the various state systems. You know, we have a process by which it's not just the prosecutor who determines whether someone should be charged or not. And every indictment that is brought that ultimately leads to a trial of a particular person before an independent judge with a constitutional right to a defense counsel has to begin somewhere. And the place where it begins formally, in a, you know, usually in a process that leads to court, is in the grand jury. And the grand jury is made up of 23 ordinary American men and women who sit in a room and deliberate over the evidence that is presented to them by just the prosecutor in the federal system. And this has drawn complaints from some folks in the federal system. There's no defense lawyer there. This is the opportunity 
for the prosecutors to make a showing on a lower standard than you do at a trial, but make a showing that there is probable cause to believe that a particular person has engaged in some criminal conduct and probable cause to believe that the person named in the indictment did those things. The usual way that a grand jury hears evidence in a case is through witnesses. And the assistant U.S. attorney in a federal case will bring in a witness. It could be an FBI agent, a DEA agent. It could be an eyewitness to a crime. Uh, questions are asked, just like you see on television in a, in a real trial. And documents are sometimes introduced through those witnesses. The prosecutor will give instructions about the law. And if and when he or she thinks that an indictment is proper, they'll draft one up. It'll be called a proposed indictment. And based on the strength of the evidence that has been brought before the grand jury uh, and instructions given on what the law is, they'll present the indictment to the 23 men and women. And they then deliberate alone with no lawyers in the room and decide whether or not to approve it. The other thing that's very important about the grand jury is its proceedings are secret. It's actually a violation of law for a prosecutor to reveal what happens in the grand jury, or for grand jurors to reveal what happens in the grand jury. Witnesses are allowed to you know, give their testimony and can talk about what happened. But the need for the grand jury proceeding to remain secret is obvious. You don't want to have to prejudice the investigation. You don't want to prejudice the rights of people who may never be charged ever. You might be reading about various things that are happening with respect to the special counsel Mueller investigation that is obviously using a grand jury. You know, this thing that we always talk about called a subpoena, Subpoenas are physically served upon a bank or upon a business or someone else by, uh, you know, an agent of law enforcement, but they're done in the name of the grand jury. That's why they're called grand jury subpoenas. So the grand jury is both a mechanism for investigating a case and getting information and causing people to come in and give information. Uh, but then as also, I said, they're also the mechanism by which a formal indictment can be lodged against a person. Hi, Preet. This is Chris listening from Indiana. It occurred to me recently that you could still be working as a U.S. attorney, but undercover as a podcast host, building your credibility as a great interviewer with no particular law enforcement affiliation, until one day you get the target of your current investigation on the show and get them to admit to their crime on the record. I wonder if you could comment on that. I realize you'll need to deny it vehemently and that you've put a lot of work into your cover story, but I think it would be a great twist, uh, maybe at the end of season five. I really enjoy the show. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for blowing my cover. We were going to have President Erdogan here next week. There goes that plan. My guest this week is journalist Katie Turr. In her new book, she takes a very intimate look at what it's like to cover a campaign, in this case, the Trump campaign and the actual work that goes into making TV. Now, despite what he says, the president does watch a lot of TV. So I think it's important to talk with journalists who get the medium and how it's unique. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. 
Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Katie Turr, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You wrote a book called Unbelievable. And you've taken copious notes in that book. Well, I always do. Good. It's a great read. But before you wrote this book, you did other things. And before you were a campaign reporter, among other things, you began in television doing something quite different. You chased storms. I did. What the hell does that mean? I was among a group of people working for the Weather Channel who chased tornadoes. And we... Like on foot? Yeah, on Sk- foot. You have skates? Yeah. Well, listen, tornadoes aren't very fast, so we, we could not? outrun them. Yeah. They spin fast. They spin fast, but they don't move. No, no I'm lying. Um, we were... <laughs> are you making, I, are you I, making this like up? I feel like we need to be clear. Okay. Tornadoes are very fast. Oh, they and are. They're very okay. dangerous, and you should uh-huh. get out of their way. Um, you ran towards them. We ran towards them. We drove towards them. So we did this project. It was called Vortex 2. Um, Vortex 1 was what they based the movie Twister off of. So this was the second iteration of it. And they based Twister 2 on Twist- Vortex 2? There's no Twisters. Was there a Twister 2? I have no idea. I don't think there was. Uh, Bill Pullman there was, was not one, there. There was one, I think it was about the board game. Well, yeah. No, it wasn't the board game. It was the movie. Anyway, I chased tornadoes, <laughs> um, and it was fascinating. And um, Were you scared? No. Actually, at one point, well, the, we saw this tornado form right in front of us in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And, I mean, it was a beautiful sight. There was nothing there. So there was no one really at risk of getting hurt. This was in, in, the, in the wide open. And um, Other than you. You could have gotten hurt. Well, other than us. But yeah. we're, we're, you know, we're not a big deal. So the sky, <laughs> the sky, and I'm from Los Angeles. I mean, rain is, is a, a weather event for me. And the sky starts opening up and turning above me. The sky literally turns. It spins above your head. It is a wild sight to behold. And out from the sky comes this funnel down to the ground. And this tornado forms. It's it's amazing how calm everything is. There's no noise. There's no wind. It's just calm. We're about a quarter mile away from this tornado. As it gets closer, things get a little more hectic. 
Anyway, and so I'm standing there stunned watching it. And I'm with this this girl who is a scientist at, um, I forget which university, but she's a meteorologist. And we're with this X-band radar. And this radar is supposed to basically scan the interior of the tornado. It's got to get as close as it possibly can. There's a number of storm chasers, like just the cowboys that do this on their own behind us. And they start running in the opposite direction because the storm's getting <laughs> pretty close. And she's like, we got to do one more spin. We got to do one more spin. And I'm looking at her saying, these crazy people, the storm chasers who are always doing things they shouldn't be doing, are fleeing fleeing, (laughs) and we're still here. Anyway, uh, we made it out alive and um, it was a beautiful, a beautiful sight. Incredible sight. Does a tornado form from the sky or from the ground? Scientists don't know. know, And that's what's so amazing. The only reason I asked the question is because we talked about it before this. Otherwise, I wasn't smart enough to know to ask that but, question. But that is, but isn't that fascinating? We're, we study weather. It, it happens all around us. We have this incredible technology, and there are still weather events that we don't quite understand. And tornadoes are, are one of those things. They don't know. And I should caveat this. If scientists have figured this out in the last two years, it's because I haven't been paying attention and Donald <laughs> Trump has filled my mind. But they don't know whether a tornado forms from the sky or forms from the ground. Wow. So you went from chasing one kind of storm to dropping into another kind of storm, yeah. which was the campaign. How did it come about that you covered the Trump campaign? I um, was living in London. I was a foreign correspondent dream job for me for most reporters because you get to live overseas you get to travel the world and somebody else is paying for it right great gig um exciting gig and i am settling in really well i'm there nine months i have a a flat in london i drink wine at lunch i've got a french boyfriend my life is (laughs) really good and i'm really happy and i come back (laughs) I know it was. It was a lot better than the tornado coverage. Um, and I go back to New York to to fulfill a Make-A-Wish that uh, was asked of me by a, a boy named Aaron who wanted to shadow me for the day. So I came back and I, I took him out for the day. And it happened to be the day that the Supreme Court decided that um, gay marriage was legal. And it was a celebratory day. I took him to the um, Stonewall Inn where everybody was celebrating in the streets down in lower Manhattan. And it was incredible. He got to watch live reports. He got to gather interviews. It was a, it was a really wonderful, positive, bright moment. And I go back to the office, and the bosses are, are trying to figure out what they're going to do with Donald Trump, who had just announced he was running for president, but businesses were, were dropping him. It wasn't really a political story at that point. It was more of a a novelty story, more of a New York story, general assignment, day of air story. Donald Trump, this New York real estate guy, has decided he's going to run for president. And now he's saying such wild things that he's ruining his business in the process. We got to get someone to do a story on this for today. And who can we have do it? Well, no political reporter is going to do this because they have actual political stories to cover. Uh, Katie Tur, she's just standing around. And so that's how I got assigned Donald Trump. And and one story turned into two, into three. And then suddenly I was assigned his campaign full time, which I was assured would just be six weeks tops. Spend the summer in New York. There was one news outlet, I think, that decided it was going to cover the campaign only as entertainment. Yeah, that was the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it it, it turned out much longer. It, it totally upended not only the politics of this country and the Republican Party, it totally upended my tiny little life with it. So you then became a person who followed the campaign around. Did there come a point when you thought, because there were all these naysayers, that Trump could win? Yeah, and it was early. I mean, there was there, there was that 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 moment when I was first assigned it by a guy um, at NBC News, the, the head of coverage. He said, and if Donald Trump wins, you'll go to the White House. And it was one of those moments that I, I, I made me stand still for a moment. We, we, we laughed, but then I thought, oh, my God, I could be going to the White House. And, and I quickly brushed it off, and I thought, that's totally insane. It's Donald Trump. Okay, move on with my day. But not long after that, when he was denigrating John McCain, which is usually just such a, a cultural taboo. You don't go after a veteran in America if you're a politician. You cannot get away with that. And you especially Who was don't go after a prisoner of war. This is a, an American hero. And he did. And he was not apologetic about it. And his poll numbers went up. And a few weeks later in Mobile, Alabama, 20,000 people showed up to cheer him on. Were they offended by the John McCain remarks? Absolutely not. They liked Donald Trump's I don't care attitude, his willingness to say whatever he wanted and not back down. And that to me, I thought I thought to myself, you know, I was having calls with the Republican National Committee and they were assuring me that he could never survive this. That there's no way Donald Trump was going to make it out of this. You better book your ticket back to London. Your time is over. Or if you want another candidate, you better start asking your bosses <laughs> to get on the Marco Rubio campaign or the Ted Cruz campaign or the Scott Walker campaign um, because Donald Trump wouldn't survive. And I thought, you know, gosh, they are wrong. Do you think you felt that way? Not just because you saw he went up in the polls after making a statement like that about John McCain, but you felt the energy in the room. Yeah. And that matters. It's really hard to describe what it was like to be there day in and day out. These rooms were like revivals, you know, meets a WWE wrestling match or a rock concert. I mean, they were they were full of energy and full of enthusiasm Donald Trump inspired people. He inspired them to to say what they were thinking. All of the hateful and horrible things that they would never say in public, they got to scream out at the top of their lungs in these rallies, and nobody would look sideways at them. And they could scream it at the press if they wanted. They could at scream you. invective at the press and tell us that we were B-words or C-words or liars or whatever. They could punch a protester in the face, and their legal fees would be paid by the candidate up on the stage, or at least he would tell them that. Or they could scream, assassinate that bitch, about Hillary Clinton, assassinate her. And nobody would look sideways. Nobody would say, hey, that's a little too far. They could do whatever they wanted. And how did you feel when you were hearing those things and observing that level of sort of unleashed emotion as a journalist and just as a person? How did I feel yeah, about it? Yeah, how did it? you feel? I mean, my feelings, you, you try to keep your feelings out of it. No, but on a podcast, you're supposed to talk about it. Well, no, 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 but I'm, I'm, <laughs> ex I'm, I'm answering. You, you, you try to keep your feelings out of it in the moment because it's not about your feelings. And if you let your feelings get in the way of your reporting, you are going to start to color it with your own opinions. That being said, it was hard to deny the anger and the hate and the vitriol. 
And it was at times very shocking, very shocking. And then it was shocking because it stopped being shocking. You speak a bit in the book about a lot of these experiences and what it was like to be on the campaign trail and interact with the candidate and interact with his campaign staff and the people who were attending his rallies. And you talk about some of the indignities that went along with that. What were some of the most uh, odd experiences you had on the campaign trail? Oh, God. I had an old man spit on me at one point. Um, this was outside of, of Trump Tower. We basically, when he wasn't on the road, we lived outside of Trump Tower in a van. So there's one day I'm doing live shots all day. And at this point, we have um, everybody covering Trump and me in particular have um, a security guard assigned to us, a bodyguard assigned to us, former Secret Service agents who are armed because I had been getting death threats and it, there was so much anger towards the press. There was real concern that one, somebody might get hurt. Anyway, so my my bodyguard, security guard guy was standing a little bit away from the truck because they don't want to crowd you. And um, this old man comes and knocks on the window. And, and the guy, I mean, he looks exactly like my grandfather. It was like my grandfather came back to life. He's wearing the same outfit, the same page boy cap. He is just, I, I, I think I'm seeing my, my, the ghost of my grandfather knock on the door. So I open it. And the man starts talking to me, and I can't quite make out what he's saying because it's so loud. So I turn my head to frame my ear towards his face, and he took it as a slight. He took it as me not wanting to listen to him. And then he started berating me, and he said something like, you female reporters are so obtuse. And I remember thinking, what? And I look at him, and then he spits. And I'm like, it was an intentional spit? It was so, it was so weird and surreal. Like he's just angry at me. You female reporters are so obtuse. <laughs> what did you do? I wiped my face and I closed the door. I said, "Excuse me, sir, get away." And I closed the door. And I was worried that I was going to hurt him because he wasn't moving. And I said, "I'm going to hurt you with this door if you don't move." And then he he got out of the way, and my security guard came back over. And he's like, "Is everything fine?" I'm like, "It is. It's just." This weird, I mean, it, it, it became almost laughable at that point. The ghost of my grandfather spit at me today. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds very odd. Were there any sweet moments? Yeah, I mean, there were, certainly. There was a, there was a nice moment. And, and this is, it's important to point out that not all of Donald Trump supporters were angry people who had hate in their hearts and who were xenophobic or racist or prejudiced or whatever other label you want to attach to them. I think that's it's important to not paint with a broad brush because if you do, you won't understand where folks are coming from. Anyway, there was one lady. We were in a bathroom in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's a couple days before Christmas, December 2015, and it's the last Trump rally of the year, I'm about to go back to London to see my apartment for the first time in a long time. I'm just waiting for the day to end. And I'm in this bathroom trying to curl my hair for nightly news because that's just what you have to do when you're a female and you're on the network news. And I'm like contorting myself because this is not a friendly bathroom. This is like a concrete bathroom with a steel mirror and the plug is behind a trash can. So I'm like holding the the curling iron, trying to crane my neck to see the mirror. And this this lady walks in and she says, 
you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a hairdresser in town. I can help you. And I look at her and I, I pause because I'm thinking to myself, I, this is a hot curling iron. Donald Trump a, a few days earlier had just told, called me a liar and, and I should be fired. I'm third rate and people are hating me at that moment. Does she think I'm crazy? Am I going to hand her this hot curling iron? Here's no a murder way. weapon, right? But she laughed. I think she understood that I, I kind of, I was hesitant. She's like, no, 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 I promise. I, I'm, I'm really good at this. I'll help you. I can do the back of your head. And so I handed it to her, and she was really lovely. And we we talked about you know Christmas coming up and the holidays, and she was really excited to be there. She liked Donald Trump, but she was just a really friendly woman who was willing to help out a vile scum reporter. <laughs> <laughs> you said a minute ago that if you are a female in journalism, you're going to be on TV, there are things you have to do. How is it different being a woman in television journalism? Well, I think it just starts with what time do you get up and versus what time do I get up? If you have to if you have to I sleep till noon these if days. If you have to get out of a hotel room at say at 6 a.m., what time are you getting up to get out of that hotel room? Me? Yeah. 5:58. Yeah. I'm getting up at 5:15. And that's and that's <laughs> I was kidding. It. I take a little bit longer. No, but no, like I'm getting up to take a shower. Your hair has to be done look neat and tidy and it takes longer when you have longer hair you have to put on a face full of makeup eyeliner and and shadows and mascara and blush and whatnot and you have to wear a different outfit every day when you say have to because that's the expectation that's the expectation listen maybe if i went on tv today without any makeup on I mean, I don't know. It would be a thing. It would be a th- if I went on TV today without any makeup on, without combing my hair. It would be a thing. You could wear the same suit every day, and and very few people would notice. And I do. And and there was a, a Australian broadcaster who did just that. It's morning show host in the most popular morning show in Australia. This man wore the same suit every single day, tie and shirt and everything for a year. Nobody noticed. And his female counterpart. When she would wear the same dress within a week or two weeks, she would get hate mail for it. What about the way you're, you're treated? Do you think there are some people you interview who underestimate you? Absolutely. I think the president underestimated me when he first sat down with me. Well, well he believes a lot of people underestimated him. Yeah. But how do you, how do you feel about being underestimated? I think it's, it's sort of, there are two ways to think about it. Is it, is it a good thing or is it sometimes... Only a bad thing? How do you feel about being underestimated? It can be a good thing because you can sit down and and if someone's underestimating you, you can... You have the upper hand, right? You have the upper hand. You can blow them away. I mean, you're more prepared than they are. But on the other hand... as a prosecutor. I've been underestimated many times and I kind of of like it. It's It's nice. It's nice. There are are circumstances where it's, it's great to be underestimated. There are others where you just want to say, come on, cut the BS. Because it's offensive? It's, it can be offensive, yeah. It can't. It, if someone's just underestimating you because you have breasts and a vagina and blonde hair, that's offensive. If that's the only reason they're underestimating you, you can work it to your advantage. But if it's every day, then it starts to get tiring. Well, so you've written a book. You're on TV, and you do you do a great job. Is there less underestimation now of you than there was, or is it? I think just... there's less. I think there still is here and there, but there's less. The book helped. Yes, I can write a sentence. Shock. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can also interview people very well. I was, and, I, and I've told you this, I've, I've watched you a few times on your show on MSNBC, and you do have this way of asking questions of somebody when that person is not making any sense of exposing the idiocy of what that person is saying, but not necessarily impolitely. Do you have a strategy 
for how you ask people questions? Oh, gosh. I um, kill them with kindness, I guess. I try not to let anybody offend me personally, or I try not to be offended personally by anybody who is on my show, even if they're trying to talk down to me. So I, I go at it with a, a feeling of this is not about me. This is about the issue. It's about how you're trying to explain it. So I'm going to try not to ever let my frustration rise above or be seen. I'm going to try. So when they are talking in circles, I point it out gently with a smile. And I continue to point it out until they finally stop and answer the question. Or it becomes so absurd that they're not answering the question that it's abundantly clear to the viewer that they can't answer the question or they don't want to. And do you do it that way because you're just being yourself or you think that's the most effective way to do it? I think for me, that's the most effective way to right. do it. I think if it was somebody else, if it's Jake Tapper, he could probably be a little more forceful. He, can, he ends the interview. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, Have you ever yeah. done that? No. I've thought about it. With who? I won't say. Come on. I won't say. <laughs> okay. You're underestimating me. <laughs> um, what, what, is TV different from, I mean, obviously it is. When you have someone on the show and, there's, and they're spouting things that you believe are not true or they're misleading in some way. Well, I think it's important. Here's the difference. Yeah. I mean, if you are, if you're interviewing somebody for a print, a print piece, you go back and you write the print piece and you, you don't just print a, a bald faced lie. Or an inaccuracy, your next sentence will be pointing out the the truth of the matter. So that's, I mean, he's using it to get to another place. Right. Mine is live and on television. You don't and have it's a chance. Right there. There's no right. chance for me to go yeah. back and to edit and to say and to fact check it in reverse. It has to be on the level in the moment. So if a lawmaker is coming on and telling me, a, when it's really C, I've got to say, no, that is actually C. Or this is an apple when it's really an orange. No, that's actually an orange, not an – or this, this is – It's a banana that's an and orange. an apple. That's yeah, a CNN, a CNN. thing. You know, can I tell you you're something? On, you're on NBC. I really like that ad. I'm sorry. I know <laughs> I will, I'm not supposed to say it, I but I really – I, really, I thought that ad was brilliant. Jeff Zucker will be very happy Kudos to CNN. Speaking of CNN, I'm a senior legal analyst at CNN, so I go on from, from time to time. <laughs> should, we, should we divulge that I begged you to come to NBC? Sure. Keep that in. Make sure you keep that in. <laughs> and I go on from time to time and I enjoy it. And I think there's value in it. Um, but I do um, want to be respectful to everyone on television, including you, my guest. I sometimes find it hard for anything of depth to happen in the course of six minutes on television. How do you feel about that? I mean, you have your show and how many guests you typically have on in an hour? Well, it depends on the day. Um, it could be anywhere from... 10 to 5. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. I try we to, can ask a couple of questions. I try to make it less people because I agree with you. There's very little you can get when you're asking six people questions in a six-minute span of time. When, when you have a panel of six people. I, hate, yeah, I so don't like those large panels. I refuse to do those. <laughs> I, good for you. Yeah. I, I don't like those large When you see one anchor and like 10 people around that anchor, I think it's just it's absurd. Do you think the viewers want to see many faces and they get bored if you have someone on for 30 minutes? I, I mean, people seem to think that. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think so. I mean, I, you should talk to those viewers. On NBC. Tweet me and tell me if you want to see more more faces because I think seeing more faces. Some people think seeing more faces makes it look very big and like we're covering all angles of something and we've got every reporter on who's who's dug into this and we're going to give you every aspect of this story. To me, it just seems like a lot of noise and it can be confusing. It's limitations of the format 
I'm going to plug my show for a moment. Please. When you get out of the... Tell two, everyone what time it's on. It's on 2 p.m. every day on MSNBC. And then on Mondays, I do Meet the Press Daily at 5. Because Chuck Todd, God bless him, needs one day off a week. But 2 p.m. is great and really exciting because there's all sorts of breaking news that happens at 2 p.m. So, yeah, we're not having a long conversation with one person because that lends itself better to the end of the day when the news is broken. In the 2 p.m. hour, you're finding out everything as it happens. So you need more voices. And we also have the press briefing. So... You know, we'll dip into that and listen to Sarah Huckabee Sanders and then come out of it and correct Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> that has to happen every day, right? Every day. So you listed all these crazy things that happen to you in broadcast journalism. You got to get up earlier. You got to make sure you have different outfits. Sometimes men will spit at you. <laughs> why Why pick this form of, of journalism? TV? Yeah. My parents were TV journalists and they always had a camera in my face. Initially, I didn't want to be a TV journalist. I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. That was my dream. But I didn't, I didn't end up pursuing it. And then when I got into the TV business, I wanted to be a field producer. I didn't want to be on, on the television. But I quickly realized that there were very few field producers out there any longer, especially there's none in almost, basically there's none in local news. And then if you want credit for the work you do, you better put your face on it. And I wanted credit for the work I was doing. And also, I really enjoy doing it in real time. I enjoy live TV. I really like it. You make some people throw up. Some people don't (laughs) like it. I really like it. I like the immediacy of it. I like the front row seat you get to history. And I I love the pictures. I love the video. I like to write. Obviously, I wrote a book. I don't find writing a book or writing as enjoyable as I find writing two pictures or describing pictures, what's in front of my face in the moment. So that's why I chose this. Can we talk about competition for a second? Yeah. It's a competitive business you're in. Mm-hmm. Does that affect affect how people report things? You know, there's the tension between getting it right and getting it first. How do you deal with that dynamic? It is tough because you want to you wanna be the first person to break a story. But you yeah, have but you to... you get it wrong today, But if you get way, it wrong, you're... It's even you're worse than ever before. Ever before. And so I think... It's really important to be out there first, but it's more important to be right. So if it's going to take you a little bit longer to nail something down, I think there's every there's every expectation that you take the time it needs. It used to be very, I mean, it still is very, we want to be first, first, first. Right. But there has been a correction, certainly with our editors, where and the bosses, the people who were pressuring us to get it on first, to say, hey, hold on. We want to be first, but we want more than anything to be right. So if you are concerned even a little bit about a story, sit on it. If you need to sit on it longer, sit on it longer. Make that extra call. Get that third, fourth, fifth, sixth source. Particularly if it's about the White House. If it's about anything nowadays. Absolutely anything. This charge of fake news is so dangerous that if you give anybody the ammunition to use it, we are we are shooting ourselves in the foot. But so the technical rule is not the, the number, the numerosity of confirmations. It's you have to think about the quality of them. You have to think about the quality of the of the of the source. You've got to think about um, where the source is coming from. Is that source getting their information from the same place? Is it somebody telling? Two people. I mean, it just depends. It depends on the circumstance. It depends on who you're talking to. It depends on what the information is. You want to get it from a variety of people coming at different angles, coming from different angles. You know, we do that all the time, though. I mean, there's there was I was the first on NBC to report who Donald Trump's vice president pick would be, and I wasn't the first person to have it. Period. 
but I it was before they announced it and I spent the entire day berating a couple of my sources to tell me who it was and finally one of them did and I could confirm and I was terrified and this is just this is something that was probably going to be true but I was terrified that what if it was not true it would be all on me have there been times when you tell an editor or producer that you have a bit of news and you're not 100% yet but they think it's good enough and they want no. you to go no no it's left to you yeah because it's your face yeah there have been times where I've said I'm 100% and they've said, no, get another source. And have they been right? Yeah. It's never bad to get another source. Unless three other networks are going to beat you, right? No. It's never bad to get another source. Good. It's well, that's good to hear. It's never bad to get another source. Listen, I mean, the news is unfolding rapidly. We're all working towards the same goal, which is uncovering the truth and facts. I'm happy if somebody else breaks a big story and it's not me, if it's an interesting story, if it's getting closer to the truth, good for them. You've talked a bit about uh, and critiqued the concept of access journalism. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by access journalism? Access journalism is I will say anything you want to hear in order for you to to tell me a piece of news or I will be milk toast. I won't ever be critical of of you or your campaign or your administration in order to be the person that has their phone calls always answered and in order to be the person who gets the small bit of tidbit non non-essential news that everyone's going to get down the line anyways like they're going to announce this person for treasury secretary who cares we're all going to find that out at some point i i don't think it's worth it and i think ultimately it's a disservice how many people do you think practice that form of access journalism? Some people do. A lot? I think now less. Why is that? I think it's proven to be a useless form of journalism. I think there's some access to There's There's levels of this. I mean, you have to take everything in moderation. It's not just I'm going to be your enemy because you're not going to like anything I say. That doesn't work and that's not what we do. But just being a vessel for their information, for their spin, then you are a PR person. I think very few people are doing that today in comparison to the past. I think a lot of people have decided that the job of a journalist is to get to the truth and to expose spin and to be as even-handed as fair as they can. There's this concept that people refer to as regulatory capture, right? So the, the regulators who are supposed to be overseeing an industry, you know, kind of as an analog to the press, end up over time becoming sort of a little bit more intimate with the industry they're supposed to be mm-hmm. regulating and enforcing regulations with respect to than they should be. And, you know, because people are human beings and you get to know people and you get to understand them. Uh, and then there are other more nefarious reasons why that happens. Is that a danger that's just natural? So when yeah. you, when, when reportters cover a campaign or, or and are embedded with someone over time, isn't it sort of, na- you know, that, that candidate then has more opportunities to be kind, to be charming, uh, you get to see that person in greater context. Do you do you fight against that? Do people fight against that? I think it's a, that's a, a reality of all beat reporting, that you get close to your subject. And if your subject succeeds, then you succeed because you get to continue covering that right. subject. So do you start rooting? Do you think some reporters are rooting for their person to win so they can go to the White House? I think reporters really struggle with it because you don't want to root for the person. You don't want to continue on. And, and there was a moment I had when 
Donald Trump lost Iowa, where I thought, well, gosh, what the heck do I do next? <laughs> right. Like, Who's going to insult me now? Yeah. Well, yeah. And what what am I going to do the day after? Am I still going to be a political reporter? Am I going back to London? It's it's a confusing experience, certainly. You you have to fight against that. You have to fight against the urge to want to see the person you're covering succeed. I I don't think it's I mean I I think we're human so everybody fights against that to a degree but I think reporters are are just preternaturally good at at distancing themselves and their personal opinions from something. I think we're just I think we're just good at doing that. We've been trained to do it. We we are able to take a step back and just that is our job. Our job is to to be honest and unbiased about something regardless of whether that's going to benefit us or not benefit us. And that's part of part of why voting can be so problematic. It's part of the reason why if I'm covering a campaign, I'm not going to vote because I don't want to I don't want to be swayed one way or the other. I don't want to overcorrect because I voted for somebody and I don't want to undercorrect because I didn't vote for somebody. But how much does it matter that you if engage in the actual act of voting if hypothetically you otherwise strongly favor one over the other because you're not just a journalist, you're also a citizen of the country. Um I mean, does it does it matter that much whether you vote or not? If you have a strong preference for who should win, I think you try to resist having a preference. But you, did you did you have a preference? I didn't have a preference. Okay, I didn't have a preference. I mean, I I it's not my job to have a preference. It, this is well. Well, what's that good say? You know, so do, do you, my, do you surrender on. citizenship? No, I, no, not at all. I think it is a privilege to have this job. It is a great privilege to be a reporter covering a presidential campaign and to convey information to the American electorate. That is a sacred honor and privilege. And I take that really seriously. I think that's an amazing opportunity. And that to me is fulfilling my duty as an American citizen, much more so than casting one ballot. Everybody should vote yes. I'm never going to say that it doesn't matter if one person votes or not. But I take this privilege that I have to be so so sacred and so serious that I think it is just as equal as casting my own ballot. Katie Turr, thanks a lot for being on the show. Congratulations on your book and on your on your own show. Preet, thank you very much for reading it. Thanks for having me. Come back to MSNBC someday. Talk to you soon. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something from the news that affected me. There's been so much stuff that's happened in the last week it's hard to pick one. It may already seem like ancient history, but you'll remember that over the weekend, we were on the brink of a government shutdown, and then the government did shut down. That happened to be short-lived, thankfully. But it just reminded me of something that happened when I was the United States Attorney. So I had that job, as you know, for seven and a half years, and I was fond of saying that I never had a bad day. Every day was a privilege to have that job. And even when things didn't always go our way, it was still a great day. Uh, there's one exception to that. The one bad day I had as U.S. attorney was when we were on the brink of a government shutdown in 2013. And I led an office of 450 dedicated public servants. And I had to go stand in front of a large group of people in my office who were dedicated to serving the public, keeping the public safe, representing the federal government in court, who could have made more money doing other things. And I had to tell them that these other government people in Washington who didn't have their act together and didn't have the same competence, intelligence, devotion to doing the right thing that they did because of their ineptitude in Washington, we were going to be in a potential shutdown situation. 
Now imagine talking to dozens of people in your own office who were just as dedicated as everyone else because people don't know how to get their act together in Washington. I've got to denote them as non-essential. And not only that, that I had to say to them, uh, even if you want to come into work on a volunteer basis to continue your cases and do the work that's important to the people of New York, you're not allowed to. You have to stay home because you're being formally furloughed. And not only that, there was no guarantee if and when the shutdown were to end, are you ever going to be paid the government salary that you lost because these other folks who are not losing any salary at all caused this to happen? I think it's just important for people to remember that when you have a shutdown like this, it's not just some people in the military who may be affected, but in government offices all over the country, including the U.S. Attorney's Office, there are lawyers and paralegals and secretaries and assistants and IT people and computer people who basically are furloughed and lose their job for a period of time with no guarantee they're going to be paid back. That's a terrible thing. We ended up getting through that shutdown and they ended up getting paid for their time. But here we are on the brink again, and I think we'll be again in a few weeks and it could happen on a repeated basis. And so my thoughts go out to the very fine people who work in the government for not a lot of money, who are much maligned, I think without reason, and hope uh, that they get treated a little bit better than folks were in 2013. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Katie Turr, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners discover the show. Send me your questions about news and politics, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky, with help this week from Courtney Harrell. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.